Well, we are going through a series called Pictures of Grace. And what I'm going to do, you have a handout there. Over the next few days, uh, coming up this Thursday, it's Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the birth of Jesus in Matthew 1, and then on the 27th, children, run to your class. We're going to look, we're going to look at uh, the book of Mark. But this, you have a handout there, and I'm not going to go through all of this. Uh, it's for your own benefit. We actually had a handout like this for every picture of grace. Two weeks ago, we looked at baptism. And when we do baptism, it is the idea of being buried with Jesus in His death and raised with Him in His resurrection to walk in newness of life. And last week we looked not only at baptism as your entry into the body of Christ, but we looked at membership, the idea that you need to join together with a body and function well, that if I were up here and trying to grab this screwdriver and trying to do it with just my pinky, and see, I can't do it with just my, well, see, just one pinky, but it's a lot easier if you grab it with four other fingers. And so the body needs every part working together in its own role. And this week, a picture of probably the most famous picture of Jesus at the Last Supper. That's where he instituted the Lord's Supper. And the picture of grace we're going to look at today is in 1 Corinthians 11. If you'll turn with me there, we'll just look quickly and then we'll actually experience the Lord's Supper together. In 1 Corinthians 11, we do this every week. So it's good for us to understand why do we do this thing, the Lord's Supper, every single week. It's a, it's a team dinner. It's where we come together as a family. It's not, uh, just a, um, it's not just a dinner that you pick up at the Smiling Moose at the drive-thru, right? You're on your way to something else but you need some sustenance, and so you go through the Smiling Moose or you order something from Lark Burger. You move in quickly, eat your Lark Burger with onion rings on it, and then you move on. Now, this is something where we slow down. And if I were to ask you, and you just picture in your mind, what, if I were to say, what's your favorite meal? And just to have you think about that for a few minutes, is it a big porterhouse Steak? No. What is it? Some people like bacon and eggs and stacks of buttery toast. No grits. But if you were to think about that for a minute, you can picture in your mind, and it's, it's that. And I assure you, you probably aren't eating that by yourself in a college room dorm, like ramen noodles, right, studying for a test. That's not your favorite meal. It's done, and it's an elaborate setup. You've got to peel that bacon off and throw it, and it just takes time to sizzle, crack those eggs. Or for me, it's a baked potato that's not just forks, poking holes in it, sticking it in the microwave. It's done in the oven. And it's that steak that's been marinating in something for like two days. You put it on, you hear it sizzle. But there's preparation that goes into it. There's preparation, and there's the enjoyment of that meal with someone. My favorite meal is never enjoyed with me scarfing down a cliff bar and a cup of coffee on the way to a meeting. But that's where we've moved in America. Our, whole li- our lives can be represented by the meals that we eat sometimes. Be very careful how I articulate that. But we move so quickly. 
The Lord's Supper is to bring us together as a family, to slow us down. There's preparation for it. We'll see that in Exodus 12. There's the idea of the Lord's Supper and what it represents. And there's hope. I love that their, their, their key phrase there, to give knowledge, help, and hope. It's, it's, it's a part of what we believe up here and here. It's part of what we do with our hands and how we serve. And then that last element, hope. And if you were going to look at the Lord's Supper, you would say there's three things to it. It is a reflection on something that has been done. It is a literal participation in something that's going on. And it's an anticipation. Somebody's coming back. Look with me into 1 Corinthians 11. Starting in verse 23, Paul explains, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. This is My body, which is for you. Paul's picking up on Luke's account, Luke twenty-two nineteen. And if you were to go and look at the Lord's Supper as Jesus instituted in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they tell of the same story. John's a little bit different. He doesn't follow the necessarily the same order they do. But if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every time the Lord's Supper is given, right before that happens, they're eating the Passover meal. And so these Jewish men had come together and they were sharing the Passover meal. The Passover, which was instituted way back in Exodus 12, went like this. And the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel on that day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. People were to be involved in other people's life. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you may take it up from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of this congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and they shall put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. The doorpost. They're supposed to take some hyssop and wipe it on this this post and above. And they shall eat the flesh at night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head and legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning shall be burned. In this manner you shall eat it. So there was a process to the way they should eat it, and there was an attitude with which they should eat it. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened and with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The idea was... Moses had done these miracles for Pharaoh and his heart was still hard and the Lord was preparing his people when, the, when this night comes, you need to be ready to go because judgment is coming upon the entire land but you, when you put the blood on the posts, I'll pass over you. It's called the Lord's Passover. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Not because he was just a Lord that executed judgment willy-nilly. He gave miracle after miracle. He was patient, and he was long-suffering. He was, as he told Moses, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Pharaoh, repent. Pharaoh, repent. And he would not. So judgment would finally come. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And in verse 14 of chapter 12, it says, This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep that feast. It goes on to explain the Feast of Booze and Moses called all the people to do it and it said the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded. And so they were carrying on this tradition, looking back upon the Passover where God sent His judgment upon the world but His special people, the called out ones, when He saw the blood of that sacrificed lamb, the judgment that came passed over and moved on. And so Paul is instructing the Corinthians... He said, when you take this bread, this is my body, which is broken for you. Jesus said, I long to take the Passover with you. And when he was doing that, he was letting them know something. That shadow, that Passover, it's complete. There's one who's come. As John the Baptist would say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you put your finger in 1 Corinthians 11 and look at 1 Corinthians 5, you see what Paul called Christ. In verse 7, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. And the explanation at the end of verse 7 of chapter 5, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That picture that was a reality in Exodus that they practiced for years. And they were practicing in the night that Jesus, uh, before He was put to death on a cross, as they practiced that, they were eating the Passover meal and He said there, do this, take this, bo- this bread, is my body broken for you. And right there in that picture, of that bread being broken and handed out to the people, this is my body for you. He did, did not say, this is my body for us. There was no need. He was the spotless lamb. He was that male, uh, barely old in his eternal state. He lived 33 years, but he was fresh in his ministry. And his body would that night, the very next day, be broken for you. Not for him. Right there you get this idea of substitutionary atonement. My body for you, not us for you. He broke it. And then he said that next phrase in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance of me. His body would be broken. And you can read in your handout, our Roman Catholic friends take this Way too literally, hyper-literally, I will call it, because they said, well, he said, this is my body, talking about the bread. Therefore, they think that the bread and the wine, 
become Christ's body. Big theological word is transubstantiation. They really believe that when you take of that bread and you drink of that wine, or in our case, grape juice, we're on that in just a minute, that it actually becomes Jesus. And that's hyper-literal because Jesus in his own life called himself, I am the gate of the sheep. He wasn't literally a gate. He called himself, I am the bread of life. He wasn't literally bread. He was using pictures to describe. And they took it, they take it just a little too far. In fact, he said in one gospel, you go tell Herod that fox. Herod's not a fox. He's conniving and sneaky like one. And so they take that too far. So when he says, this is my body broken for you, it's not his literal body. It's a spiritual representation of what happened to us. His body was broken. He was killed for us. He did not say, this is my body for us. It is for you. So you and I come to the Lord's Supper and we take, in our case, an oyster cracker. And that's okay. You can have oyster crackers and grape juice. And you take that and you're to reflect back, look back and say, okay, there was a Passover for the Jews and Jesus fulfilled that at the cross. So when I take of this bread, I'm identifying, John 6, if you don't eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. I'm identifying who I am with Jesus Christ. I'm telling everybody that's gathered together that I believe that Jesus' death was my death. I should have died. Everybody that's watching or participating says that person right there really believes that Jesus died for them. Substitutionary penal atonement. It wasn't Jesus that needed to die. It was us that needed to die. But we couldn't do it. God had to have God satisfy his wrath so the God-man died for us. Paul goes on to say, in the same way he took the cup and after supper he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Again, making a spiritual reference to all the long you had the Passover, you had the Abrahamic covenant, the, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, all of this leading up to this new covenant. This new covenant where no longer would it be us trying to work our way to the Lord. It would be the Lord doing the work for us. He would put the statutes in our hearts. Jeremiah 31 talks about it. It's the new covenant. It has nothing to do with our works. He says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a heart. I will take out the heart of stone and I will put in a heart of flesh. And for covenants to have taken place, if we go all the way back and you see when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, something had to die. They tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves and he would not go for fig leaf religion. It just says very uh, subtly and they put skins on them. Something had to die. And Abraham, when he received his covenant in Genesis, it said that he tore apart the animals and he didn't even walk in between it. Somebody walked in between and sealed that covenant that would be forever. Something has to die. 
Blood has to be spilled. And so Jesus said, this is the new covenant. No longer are we under the law. Now comes grace. Is the law bad? May it never be. It's a tutor that leads us to Jesus. The Passover pointed to Jesus. And so when we take of that bread and then we take of the grape juice or the wine, bread and the wine, what we are saying is Christ died for me and I'm living within the new covenant. Christ, who did not need to die theoretically because of his sin, Christ chose to die. I laid my own my life and I take it up again. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That son went in perfect and always perfect obedience to the father. He said, I do nothing on my own. I only do what my father commands me to do. He was the perfect child. He was the perfect adult. And he went to the cross. And it was on that cross. You and I, our lives were spared. Sometimes we say it, and I say it facetiously. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. Oh, better than I deserve. I deserve hell. 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 Spend life away from God. This is not just some silly little thing we do at the end of a service. More than... No, I don't want to say that. Not more than baptism, because baptism is a beautiful picture I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I've died and I've risen. And this just tells the world there's an ongoing fellowship between me and my Father. It's not just an oyster cracker and it's not just grape juice. Now, we don't think that they turn into the blood and body of Christ. That's just hyperliteral. We believe it is a spiritual memorial, but we believe that Christ is present with us and that we're telling the world He died for me and He loved me enough to spill His blood to solidify the covenant that now I don't have a righteousness of my own. Philippians 3.9 tells me that. I have His righteousness. It's been imputed to me. Praise God. And He says, do this. Do this. This act of the bread and of the wine, do this act, this picture of grace. I'm identifying, I'm participating in Jesus as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You look back to the cross and then he says, for every time, as often as you drink of it and often as you eat the bread, you proclaim his death until he comes. It's the whole Christian life wrapped up into one little living picture of lasting grace. It's a picture of what Jesus did on the cross. He died 
for my sins. He died for your sins. The Bible tells us he died for the sins of the world. So that those who believe in him might have life and we participate as a family. That's why we do it together. That's why I do not take communion at home with my family alone. That's not the church. We come together as a body. The first time it was given, it was given to a group of his disciples. Here in 1 Corinthians, it's the first representation outside the Gospels and Acts at an established church. And it begins this whole paragraph. It says, for in the first place, when you come together as the church, verse 18, when you come together as the church. So there seems to be a case being made by Paul implicitly that when you don't come together, you're not the church. You're part of the universal church, but you're not a part of the local church. And so what he's saying is when you come together as the church, don't do it in a selfish, where the rich were eating and getting drunk and the poor were left without food, 17 through 22. But do it like this. As often as you do it, you participate in something bigger until he comes. Because he's coming back someday. Reflection, participation, anticipation. He's coming back. And Revelation tells us there'll be a marriage supper of the Lamb. Bacon and eggs will be there. Steak will be there. Biscuits and gravy. Maybe. We don't want to presume upon. It's not in the text. We don't know. But something's going to be there, and it's going to be really good. The controversies throughout history, you've had transubstantiation, and we realize that that's just, I've got to give them the benefit of that and love their hearts. They really want Christ to be present in the sacrifice, but it diminishes the cross. It was a one-time deal, Hebrews 9, and the Catholic Church says that only priests can administer the, the elements. First Peter 2 says we're a royal priesthood. So, Lord willing, as we play this out, you see men from the congregation helping out. And we'll get others up here who are comfortable enough to deliver. It doesn't have to be a pastor and elder. It is a man who's walking in godliness with character who can help administer to this. And it's, a, it's an anticipation. He's coming back. And guess what? Paul goes on to say in 27 through 32, be careful. Be careful. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in another unworthy manner, he had just gotten on to them and told them, don't come and use this Lord's Supper. It's not even called the Lord's Supper as a source of disunity. Let that person examine himself and then so eat the bread and the cup. And he goes on to say, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon the self. It's not just a little traditional activity. And my fear is sometimes we just go through the motions. Just like my wife went to her particular church and every week they quoted the Apostles' Creed. Our Father, who art in heaven. Oh, that's the Lord's Prayer. Uh, they did that too. And you could just hear it. I remember one Christmas. Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. No heart. No passion. So examine yourself. We're going to do it today. Look what he says in 30. 
I'm not going to make much of it, but I'm not going to ignore it. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. (laughs) Now, to just run right over that verse, to move on, would not be giving the warning that I think Paul's giving. Paul's saying, because some of you approach the Lord's Supper with such flippancy, some of you are weak and ill and sick, and some of you have died. There's no other way to take that verse. Now, I'm not saying the sniffles that I have are because of some ongoing sin in my life, or last week I didn't take the Lord's Supper correctly. Yet I'm not going to overlook Paul's severity with which he looks at the Lord's Supper. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I'd rather you, Paul is saying, be disciplined by the Lord than to be given over. It's a serious thing. It's not just, we don't just, when Andrew gets up here or Eric gets up here, we're not just going through the motions. Okay, it's time for the Lord's Supper. We're representing to everybody here Jesus Christ died and he rose again and right now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's coming back. Knowledge, help, and hope. Knowledge of the Lord's Supper. We're going to ask men to help us do this and it helps us each week to say, how can I get my life right? At the end of this handout, I give you some questions. Do I see and savor what the Lord's Supper signifies? Do I understand my past faith, my present love, and the future hope? Do I feel genuine remorse? That is, do I feel bad at my actions and my attitudes that are inconsistent with Christ-likeness? Do I renounce those actions and attitudes and turn from them to Christ-likeness by loving my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those less fortunate myself? That is, am I going to repent? And do I trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of these, and you've noticed, actions and attitudes. I put actions and attitudes because so many times we think, if I don't do it volitionally, it's okay. And inside I can be churning, and my heart can be as evil and as vile, but as long as I don't do it, it's okay. And there's something to be said for self-control and restraint. But I'm far more convinced, having been a senior pastor for a short 11 months, that God's really more concerned, not more, well, as concerned, got to articulate it correctly, God is as concerned with my attitude as he is with my action. So we don't approach the Lord's Supper flippantly. Christ died cross for our sins and he rose again and the action that we do it is we ask these questions Lord do I understand what you're doing did am I am I repentant and do I believe in your grace and am I happy and joyful that one day Jesus is coming back and all these pictures this baptism it'll be done Our faith will be sight. This Lord's Supper will be a shadow. And we will actually will participate in the Passover according to Luke when when Jesus comes back. I don't know what it'll look like, but he just says, I can't wait to do this when I come in my kingdom.
And you know what? Before Jesus died, he had to be born. He had to be born. And that's what we're going to talk about Thursday. He couldn't have lived that perfect life. He couldn't have died that substitutionary death. He couldn't have rose and conquered the grave and put 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 to death death, who, who took the sting out of death and who conquered Satan. He couldn't have done that unless he was born a certain way. Come back Thursday to hear that. Father, as these men come forward to help us distribute the elements, I pray that we would hold the bread in our hand and think about what your son did on the cross. I pray that we would hold the blood and the, or the wine in, your, in, a, in the cup and think about the blessings and the joys with what we get in the new covenant, that we've got new hearts. You've caused us to walk in obedience. You are our ruler, our Savior, and our Lord. I pray that we would think about that. I pray that as we take these, we would recognize we're participating with this family in a family meal. And I pray before we do this that every person in this room, including myself, would have a check in their spirit. Am I trusting you by grace alone, through faith alone, through the forgiveness of my sins? Is there a relationship that I need to reconcile? Father, I pray that you would put that on the heart's myself and everybody gathered here today, that as we partake in this Lord's Supper, we might do it with a certain seriousness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.